if you could like just turn the mic up let, or no i'm sorry like rotate it um <laughs> no uh <laughs> oh like what do this you mean? like this so the the flat part is yeah facing you better <laughs> sorry <laughs> that is up what do you mean <laughs> i am honestly the worst person in the world at giving directions for anything i mean same Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. I'm going to tell you the story of Eva Toguri. Toguri? 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 Nobody's going to know. Just pick one and we'll be confident. <laughs> Eva Toguri and Tokyo Rose. That sounds like a heavy metal band. Uh, well, it's not. Let me tell you what it is. <laughs> so we're going to jump, jump around a little bit. Okay. So Eva Toguri was born in Los Angeles in 1916 to Japanese immigrant parents. She was a Girl Scout had a Christian upbringing, and she actually attended grammar schools in Mexico and San Diego before her and her family returned to L.A., where she attended high school. She, gradu- uh, she graduated from the University of California in L.A. in 1940 with a degree in zoology and at the same time registered to vote as a Republican. So this is who Eva is. So in, um, on July 15th, 1941, she set sail for Japan to visit an ailing relative. The U.S. Department had issued her a certificate of identification. So just remember, like, she had a certificate of identification, but she did not have a passport. Okay? It, I'm sorry. They was were, she American? Or where was she from? I forget. That. She was born in California. Right. Her okay. parents were immigrants from Japan. Okay. Yeah. That uh, I was just making sure I was following all this weird, like, oh, she went to grammar school in Mexico. Yeah. Went- <laughs> it was a whole weird time. Okay. Sorry. I was like half listening. But sorry. she didn't just remember she didn't have a passport when she went to Japan. Okay. She like went there in 1941. So this is like right before uh, July 1941. So this is right before the U.S. entered the war. Mm hmm. By August, Eva applied to the U.S. vice consul in Japan for a passport as she was now wishing to return home. They sent her request to the State Department, but so it took from August to like 1942 for her to get an answer because they sent um, her request to the State Department. But the attack on Pearl Harbor took place in December of 1941. And so obviously everybody is like now like scrambling because Mm -hmm. they've just been attacked. So the State Department didn't get back to her until um, like early 1942, but they refused to certify her citizenship. And because she didn't have a passport going there, they denied her entry into the U.S. Of course they did. Of course we did. So because she was now stuck in Japan... And the U.S. was now involved in World War II. The Japanese government pressured her to renounce her U.S. citizenship. 
they're like, you're here now and they don't want you. So you're not an American anymore. Apparently, they did this to a lot of Americans that were in Japanese territory at this time. But Eva was strong and she refused. And therefore was labeled an enemy alien. Because she was labeled an enemy alien, she was refused a war ration card. So basically they said, now you have to starve. She did find a way to support herself. So originally she got a job as a typist at a Japanese news agency. Um, And then eventually she found herself working a similar role, but for Radio Tokyo. Okay. Okay. So let's jump. Here's where we're going to jump. I'm going to tell you about Radio Tokyo, okay? So we'll come back to, to Eva, but... Um, so during World War II, Allied forces were stationed in the South Pacific, as they should be because we got bombed, okay? Right. At this time, all they had for comfort were photos, letters from home, if they could get them, and the radio. So the Japanese took advantage of this and started to incorporate propaganda... During broadcasts um, of a show called The Zero Hour, which actually ended up being like 75 minutes. So it was not an hour, but I digress. (laughs) The crazy thing was that many of the broadcasters were actually allied POWs that they were forcing to do the show. Oh. Because in their mind, um, if they spoke, especially if they spoke English... Um, but they felt like it would be more trustworthy if, um, allied forces were hearing from individuals that spoke their native language. Um, and they also used women, especially, uh, Japanese women who spoke pretty good English as well to help stir up the propaganda. So, I mean, that's a pretty good plan of action but anyways you'd think (laughs) oh so just hold on (laughs) okay well it sounded good that's (laughs) yeah so these women were located throughout the japanese empire in different cities and would use different aliases um they would what their main goal was was to emphasize wartime difficulties um such as making an emphasis on you being away from home um Trying to convince men that their wives were at home cheating on them. And military losses. So anything that was happening in terms of like actual uh, war, they would emphasize like you're a loser and you lost this many ships and da da da, whatever, whatever. So due to letter writing, um, different news outlets being given access to interview such, you know, high-ranking officers or what have you. This information did make it back to the countries of the Allied forces. So people in the U.S., Australia, Britain, uh, were aware of what was going on with Radio Tokyo. Wait, um, um, can I ask a clarifying? Yeah question um just for my understanding so they're targeting allies who are stationed yeah around yeah so they were on like ships and stuff like that and i mean radio you can only get radio waves so close and so um with them being in the pacific they didn't really have many 
options in terms of what to listen to. And they would also make sure to emphasize by playing, um, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like American music. Um, they would also do like comedy sketches, things to kind of like bring them in and make them want to listen. But then parts of the show were just like propaganda. Okay, so it, it was primed to target these yes, allies. Like forces. that's what this was. The whole point of it was the whole okay. zero hour was literally to try to derail the allied forces and make them kind of like put put them inside psychological their targeting. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do want to emphasize that none of the women that were a part of this used the moniker Tokyo Rose. Okay. But through no fault of their own, really, I guess. I can't, I don't know. The because they couldn't tell the difference between voices. And I, I want to I want to assume that they're not racially profiling. I want I would like to assume that the Allied forces just had a hard time telling voices because it was on a radio. Um, so that's what I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna think about this positively. Um, they thought all the women's voices, uh, they were all the, all the same and that they belonged to one person. Okay. So anytime a woman was on air, they thought that it was just one woman. And so they started calling her Tokyo Rose because none of the women actually used their alias while on air, but they used their alias to kind of communicate within the Radio Tokyo network. So that way... No one would know who actually was involved, if that makes sense. Are you following? Uh, okay, so Radio Tokyo. Radio Tokyo is a, station. is a station, and they produce the Zero Hour. The Zero Hour is the propaganda show. Right. And the women, there were probably like four, or no, like five to seven women that were involved. Along, I mean, there were men too, but mm -hmm. there were women involved. They had aliases. Um, so they didn't have to use their real name and they did not necessarily, unless, unless I could not find it, but the notes I found, I did not see or read anywhere where it said that they use their aliases on broadcast. It was more, my understanding is it was more just to communicate internally. Oh, so almost like code names for yeah, each of them yeah, yeah. internally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that people just thought this, they thought they were one woman. Right. Whose name was Tokyo Rose. That was what they called her. Called her Tokyo mm -hmm. Rose. Do they ever physically see Tokyo Rose or are you getting there? I'm going to get there. Okay. Now, all of this is going to tie together. Okay. I just wanted to make sure we were still talking about like in their own little broadcast world, which is where yes. we're at still, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, um, though... Like I said, though none of the women used Tokyo Rose, uh, the forces started using this name to reference the voice. In 1943, because they were communicating with people at home, uh, when, you know, newspapers and, I mean, they would sometimes pick up the broadcast as well. So um, U.S. newspapers started using this name in their reporting because they did start reporting about to uh, Radio Tokyo. All I can say is America. <laughs> so she became, she, as in Tokyo Rose, yeah, um, became a very important symbol of the Japanese quote-unquote evil during World War II. They, they started making cartoons, movies, U.S. propaganda videos, 
portraying her as overly sexualized, manipulative, and deadly to American interests in the South Pacific. This was highly due to the fact that women were spreading the American losses all across the airwaves. So because they had this, um, even though they were talking about, oh, like this American music and you should enjoy yourself and blah, 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 blah. They were talking about, hey, you're losing X, Y, and Z in this place and you lost against Mussolini in Italy and just like all kinds of stuff. And so they did emphasize that. And so people were pissed. So let's go back a little bit to how Eva ties into this. So, um, as I said before, Eva found herself working a role at Radio Tokyo. Well, she eventually found her way into, um, being a part of the group of women that was a part of the propaganda section. Eva's producer was actually Australian Army Major Charles Cousins. Um, he had pre-war experience with broadcasting and was captured by the Japanese at the fall of Singapore. And so, like I said, they used a lot of POWs. I mean, especially someone who had his pre-war experience, they're definitely going to use him. Right. So he was coerced to work on the show and his assistants were U.S. Army Captain Wallace Ince and Philippine Army Lieutenant Normando Idefonso Reyes. People called him Norman. Okay. Okay. So um, she gained their trust because she ended up risking her life to try to smuggle food into the nearby POW camp. And so that's how she met Cousins and Ince. Um, and they were able to kind of create a relationship through that because they understood that she was kind of able to gain their trust and let them know, like, hey, I'm really an American. Like, I'm not even supposed to be here. And they were like, girl, same us too. <laughs> so um, at first, Eva refused to participate. She was like, I mean, she told the Japanese she wasn't going to denounce her U.S. citizenship. So, of course, she doesn't want to talk about anything negative when it comes to the u.s and the allied forces so cousins and ints um finally helped convince her because they cared about her and they didn't want to see her get hurt just because she refused to do something that the japanese were trying to make her do so they ended up telling her that they would not write anything in her script that would have her negatively bash the u.s and they actually were true to their word. And oh, um, she did not, unless, you know, unless the Japanese made her. But they, when they were writing her script, never forced her to say anything against the U.S. So Eva would perform comedy sketches and introduce music, um, but never did any newscasts. Uh, she only had a speaking time of about 20 minutes, but actually did host about 340 broadcasts. So for her work... She earned 150 yen, which is about $7 American per month. Not like a week, a day, just a month. She got $7 a month. So is that in accounting for inflation, like today's value? No, that value? was, I believe, I believe it was $7 like at the time. Okay. So thinking $5 now. Oh, wait, this is 1945. It doesn't matter. We don't need to do the calculation. $7 yeah, is not sorry, a lot. I didn't do the calculation. I probably should have. No, it's fine. Um, but it doesn't matter because all almost all of her earnings she used to feed POWs. Wow. Yeah. So 
She tried to reach out to her fellow Americans by um, when when she would get on air, she would use phrases such as like my fellow orphans, using American slang, and even playing American music. Uh, she never, I would like to emphasize, never, ever, ever called herself Tokyo Rose. She actually went by Orphan Anne, which was a reference to the comic strip Little Orphan Annie. If you watch A Christmas Story, you'll hear all about Little Orphan Annie, (laughs) but I digress. So, also during this time, while working on the broadcast, she met a Portuguese citizen named Philippe Diacoin... I said it earlier. I looked it up and I Googled... You were like practicing at home. Yeah, and I'm here and I'm effing it up. Uh, Diaquino. There it is. And the two would get married in April 1945. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So, as we talked about, Japan surrendered on August 15th, 1945. Okay. Not very long after she got married. <sighs> but things are not looking up for Eva Whitley, even though Japan surrendered and she's married. So, Harry T. Brundage of Cosmopolitan Magazine and Clark Lee of Hearst's International News Service, or INS, together offered $2,000, which was actually equal to a year's wages in occupied Japan at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So, a good chunk of money. Yes. Um, for an exclusive with, quote, Tokyo Rose. Because, again, everybody was under the impression it was one person. Right. <sighs> Eva was desperate, okay, for money. Because she was under the impression that she would be able to now get back home. Because they're not at war with Japan anymore. So she stepped forward to accept the offer and to give an exclusive interview with the two men. <sighs> She wasn't able to collect, and let me tell you why. They arrested her on September 5th, 1945, in Yokohama. Brundage, and I'm not saying all reporters, but this guy's a POS, for real. Brundage tried to then sell the transcript of the interview as her quote-unquote confession. Confession of, like, crimes against the U.S.? Confession of being Tokyo Rose. Oh, so treason, essentially. Basically, yes. Even though they told her, you're not a citizen, we're not giving you a passport. But I right, digress. Now she's a citizen. Now she's a citizen. This whole story makes me angry. So she did spend a year in prison, but was then released because neither the FBI nor General Douglas MacArthur's staff could find any evidence that she helped the Japanese. So the American and Australian POWs who wrote the tr- uh, the scripts for her um, ended up stepping forward and explaining that she had committed no wrongdoings. Like basically kind of like explained the situation. However, after all of this, she asked re- to return to the U.S. because she was pregnant now. She's like, hey, I'm pregnant. I'm an American citizen and I would love my child to be born on U.S. soil as also an American citizen. They were like, no. We know. So her baby was born in Japan, but because her life can't get worse enough, the child died shortly after. And now Mm -hmm. you're like, oh my gosh, that's so sad. 
Like, things are going to turn around for her, right? No. Wrong. It gets worse. This poor woman. I know. Just wait. Because we are really just shit people. I'm talking we as Americans. Just wait. So after all of this, she said, please, God, let me back. Because I have nothing to live for. I mean, she does have a husband. But, I mean, now her child's dead. It's a whole big mess. Except, Whitley, Walter Winchell who's an influential gossip columnist and radio host, and the American Legion lobbied against her to return. And they said, we don't want her back. Actually, just kidding, we do, but we want you to convict her on treason. I mean, have a little compassion, people. I mean, no. <laughs> I, I also, through the lens of what we did to Japanese Americans during the war, mm-hmm. I'm not shocked but this is just another example of looking back and saying, wow. Yeah. We're terrible. Yeah. And we did not. I mean, I don't understand how you can have POW step forward and be like, hey, here's what happened. We wrote the script for her. She was coerced. As were we. We were all in the same situation. And you're going to have not only a gossip columnist and radio host, but the American Legion be like, we want to convict her of treason. Just because all, I mean, she had no other option but to step forward and be like, yeah, I'm Tokyo Rose. But you literally had no evidence that she actually was Tokyo Rose. So how are you going to convict her of treason? And you've got three actual witnesses. Yeah. Who were like, no. One being an actual American. Right. But Whitley. But we're just going to trust this gossip columnist. And they do. Because not long after her child died, was she arrested by the U.S. military and transported to San Francisco on um, September 25th, 1948. You can't. They did. They can and they did. You cannot extradite people like that. I don't know. Maybe the laws were different then, but... There were no laws. <laughs> this is this is the wild, wild west, baby. <laughs> okay? So. Point, point taken. She was charged by federal prosecutors with the crime of treason for, quote, adhering to and giving aid and comfort to the imperial government of Japan during World War II, end quote. That's what they... That's, that's the crime. To me, it sounds like she was doing the opposite by not bashing allied forces and giving our troops a little piece of home. You know that. I know that. Walter Winchell and the American Legion don't care. They know that, but they're like, "Mm, she's Japanese. We don't want Japanese people here. Fair. Even though she's actually American. Yes. Yes. So the trial Her trial began July 5th, 1949. So from September, September 25th, 1948 to July 5th, 1949, she's sitting in some jail, whatever, whatever, in San Francisco. Just sitting, waiting, panicked, I'm sure. So it starts July 5th, 1949. She was charged with eight counts of, quote, a quote-unquote, overt acts of treason. 
Overt. Overt acts. Yep. That, <laughs> that's a stretch. I mean, the whole thing's a stretch. Like the, the whole thing's Even just... charging her with anything is a stretch, but the fact that yes. they put the word overt in yes. front of it. Yes. So it was the costliest and longest trial in American history at the time. I would understand why, because they don't know what they're charging her with, with what evidence. Her defense team was led by Wayne Mortimer Collins, who was a prominent advocate of Japanese American rights. We stand him. I just want you to know. So the Australian government had acquitted army major cousins of treason because they were like, you're a POW and you had no choice but to save your life and participate in this this shenanigan. So because Wayne Mortimer Collins is smart, he called cousins as a witness for Eva. Okay. So like you'd think that's that's two check boxes. They're calling a POW and a POW who was already acquitted for the same freaking thing that we're charging her with. But Whitley, it does not matter. Because on September 29th, 1949, they found her guilty of one charge out of the eight. And it was count six. Count six reads, quote, that on a day during October 1944, the exact date being to the grand jurors unknown, said defendant at Tokyo, Japan, in broadcasting studio of the Broadcasting Corporation of Japan, did speak into a microphone concerning the loss of ships. End quote. That's just a fact, right? Yes, and like I said, they tried very hard to not have her talk about anything in regards to, like, the U.S. However, if the, if the Japanese came in and were like, hey, we just sank some ships and you got to talk about it right now, what was she going to do? Talk about the ships. I mean, come on. I mean, at this point, they should charge every prisoner of war with aiding the enemy. Yeah. Every, I mean, let's come on, line them up. Every prisoner of war treason, I guess. I, I don't if, understand. If they're like working in labor camps, for example, and like yes. making supplies for the Japanese Imperial Army, mm -hmm. are they not doing no, actually more damage than... They're the actual military, apparently, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what, like, what the difference is. So what I'm hearing here is that they abandoned this... American woman in Japan. Correct. During a war. Yes. And then to survive because America abandoned her Correct. in Japan during yes. the war. Mm -hmm. She gets a job that pays her basically nothing. Yep. Which she, she helps. then gives to the POWs. Right. She helps mm -hmm. POWs. She says one thing about some ships that were sank and she's a criminal. And yes. So, but And then they're like, actually, we want you back now. To be a criminal and serve your time. Yes. Now, something I want to clarify is, like, let's not forget that um, the Brundage guy, the reporter. So he, again, just so everyone's clear, was literally going around saying that his interview with her was her confession. So, like, that's partly what the prosecution used was Brundage being like, waving some papers around like it's her it's her confession it's her confession 
my thing is, I don't know about law. So, like, correct me if I'm wrong. Me personally, I feel like if I was a lawyer or a prosecutor, at, 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 in fact, it would look shady to me that somebody who claims to have someone's confession immediately is trying to sell it to make money. That to me, I would be like, okay, I need to vet this guy and I need to clarify some information in this quote unquote confession because if it was a legitimate confession, either now you're a tree, like committing treason because you're not providing it to us or maybe not treason. Maybe that's a little like far-fetched, but you're, you're, what's the word? What's that thing where you like, uh, stop You're hindering an investigation. Yeah. So you're hindering an investigation and you're trying to sell it. Only only shady people do that. Okay, just based on my expertise watching Law and Order, SVU, which is where I get like yes, same. <laughs> this person does not seem like a reputable witness that no. the jury should believe. No. But anyways, well, hold your horses because we talk about him again. So the grand jury decided. Because she was guilty, she deserved a $10,000 fine and a 10-year prison sentence. Why both? I mean, you probably don't have the answer to that, but come on. Treason. So, Collins, her attorney, was quoted saying after the verdict, uh, guilty without evidence. Which, yes. That's, yes, that's exactly what this is. So, she, so mind you, this all took place in San Francisco, the the westest west coast you could get okay they send her to the federal i'm talking too fast my mind's going because i'm mad federal reformatory for women in alderson west virginia oh come on (laughs) where she's only been to california and mexico and they're gonna send her to west virginia how much torture can this woman endure Whitley, she was paroled, okay? Good for her. Love that. But guess how long she was in there for before she got paroled? I'm going to guess five years at least. Six years and two months. Her release date was January 28th, 1956. So she did end up moving to Chicago. The FBI case notes, because they're open to the public. Well, not all of them, but some. It states, quote, neither Brundage, the reporter, nor the suborned witness, Hiromu Yagi, testified at trial because of the taint of perjury. Nor was Brundage prosecuted for sub, sub, subornation of perjury which is basically persuading or causing another party to lie under oath so they said let me let me end quote let me tell you what this basically says it says we know this guy's lying (laughs) we're going to use the evidence from him anyway but we're not going to ask him to get on the stand because we know that he will perjure himself that's literally what that says so they forced this woman to spend six years and two months in the great state of West Virginia. Yes, with Mountain Mama, for sure. I mean, 
over a lie. Over a lie. Over the fact that we literally left this poor woman in Japan. And at the end of the whole situation, she said, I have no other options but to claim I'm Tokyo Rose for $2,000 that she didn't even get. And now she has to pay $10,000 and give up six years and two months of her life. So, I mean, because we just want to believe what we want to believe. Every, all the Japanese are terrible. So I get the initial charge of like, oh, if she really is Tokyo Rose and is the only Tokyo Rose, like I get the initial like the upset. The very first thing. Yes. Yes. Correct. But like once all of this evidence comes out and there are multiple people who are like, no, yeah, we work directly with this woman. Yeah. She did stand up comedy and, you know, Played American music. music. Yes. And they're like, actually, we're going to. Mm-hmm. rely on the word of this journalist who we know is lying and we can't put him on the stand because yes. he will lie and that will be a criminal offense. Yes. Well, Whitley, <clears throat> there's more. How can there be more? <laughs> Why is there because more? Because it continues. So, Tom DeWolf is the special assistant attorney general who was a, quote, veteran of radio treason prosecutions, end quote. Why? It was very hard for me to understand who this quote was from. In the notes I was looking at, I couldn't really quite grasp who was talking. I'm under the impression that it was the prosecutor of the case. Um, But I do want to clarify to everybody that I, I cannot, I can't say that for certain. But here's the quote. The person talking says, Tom made it seem that it was, quote, necessary for me to practically make a 4th of July speech in order to obtain an indictment, end quote, and lead him to urge the Department of Justice to further investigate and so, quote, shore up, end quote, the case in Japan. So is this referring to the Tokyo Rose? Yeah, and case? it's referring to Tom, the special assistant attorney general. Right. Basically, how I took it was he was like, you need to make a 4th of July speech, like kind of like get the morale of people and get them all hyped up because it's 4th of July, baby, like America. And we want these, we want to take these people out for treason. And... And then turn around and basically be like, we need to like trump up charges to make the point. Like, that's how I took this quote. They could have meant it differently. But that's how I took it. I mean, it that because, doesn't sound incorrect. I mean, it's like when something big happens and you're like, well, we have to blame somebody. And they just yes. like she was a scapegoat for. Yes. All potential treason that could have like occurred. Correct. Which, again, coming back to the point you made a little bit ago, like, how are you going to initially be like, we don't have enough evidence to, we have enough evidence for six years of, for her to do six years of time. Yeah. You don't. Or you would have done it originally. So. So this woman was just a victim of racism and this really detrimental patriotism at the time yes so he made this 
this whoever this was made the speech or whatever had this conversation um and the shore up the case in japan leads to like they're also trying to get more information mr studer it's like do you have a freaking baby in here no. like, i'm leaving if their kid ghosts in here um, <laughs> Like, this, don't play with me. We so, have five kid ghosts in here. I will literally leave and never come back. We'll record at my house forever. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, the show of the ja- uh, case in Japan was basically also referring to the fact that he was like, we need to get as many people involved in this, like, Tokyo ra- or Radio Tokyo. Like, we need to get them on treason. Like, we need to just get them all into prison like convict them we need to do it however this created problems for him whitley because because they were furthering their work and digging into stuff they dug too far because soon after eva's indictment government witness that was mentioned uh before hiramu uh hiramu yagi mm-hmm. um Admitted that his grand jury testimony was perjured. Here's the it gets worse section. (laughs) In 1976, Ron Yates from the Chicago Tribune discovered that Kenkichi Yoki and George Mitsushio had perjured themselves also. And these individuals had given the most damaging testimony in the trial. They came out to Ron Yates saying that the FBI and the U.S. Occupation Police had coached them for two months on what they were supposed to say on the stand and then threatened them that if they did not say what they told them to say, they would have their own treason trials. So essentially they like put them... In the same shoes that Eva was in in yes. Japan, this yes. just is yes. all pointing towards racism and corruption. Well, yeah, that too. We love a good corruption story in the U.S. That's what we were built on. <laughs> so here's the it's get it gets better section because our we are so ready. I'm for glad because this better. woman has lost so many years of her life to this already. So Gerald Ford. President Gerald Ford, we're all familiar. Um, I will personally say I'm not very familiar with like every single part of his presidency. So unless I find out otherwise, I'm in love with him for this reason right here. He granted a full and unconditional pardon to Eva on January 19th, 1977. And it was his, it actually was on his last full day in office. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Both houses of the California State Legislature, the National Japanese American Citizens League, and S.I. Hayakawa, 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 because I spoke too fast, who's the U.S. Senator from California at the time, all supported the pardon. They're like, yeah, we effed up big time, as they should. This restored her U.S. citizenship. Wait a minute. She, what? She was convicted of treason, so they swiped her U.S. citizenship away from her. So, 
I mean, in theory of how it works, I guess, she was living in Chicago as a non-citizen. Um, and then was not a citizen. So she was released in 56. So from 1956 to 1977, she was not a citizen. And when they pardoned her in 77, she got her citizenship back. That is atrocious. Yes. Correct. It didn't even cross my mind that, like, this was stripped from her when she left, essentially. Yeah, in, essentially, what, she hasn't had citizenship since 1941. Let's be honest. Oh, 1941. Yeah. yeah. I guess that didn't even cross my mind that she never got it back mm-hmm. until that point in time. That was, what, 30-odd years of just not being a citizen. When you were born here. She was born here. That's garbage. It is. And it gets kind of worse for her. Oh. Because even though she's a citizen, we can celebrate. She's been pardoned. In 1980, she very reluctantly divorced her husband. Because... He had been repeatedly denied admission into the U.S. I mean, I don't blame her. I wouldn't want to leave again after the whole situation she's been in. Oh, no, she gets stuck somewhere again. Yeah. She just got her citizenship back. So, yeah. Wait, so was she separated from her husband that whole time? Yeah. He was, I mean, he was in Japan when they met, but he was actually a, a Filipino. So, I don't know if he stayed in Japan. I don't know if he went to the Philippines. I, he could have been in Britain for all I know. He was definitely not in the U.S. and he had been repeatedly denied admission into the U.S. And so in 1980, she divorced him because they couldn't be together. They literally had it a took kid. her that long to divorce them? Or like, well, I think because well, one, she was in prison, so what's she well, gonna do? Yeah. Then she got out, and my understanding from the notes is that she, from the time she got out in '56 to the time that. Uh, she was pardoned 77 to the time they got divorced in 80. I mean, she, he probably was trying to get into the U.S. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was hard originally because they probably weren't letting a ton of people in because of the war and everything. Trying to figure out who actually did commit treason and what capacity. And so like that, I understand, like not initially, like just, you know, opening the, the floodgates and letting people in and whatever. But... I really could not find why they wouldn't let him in after the fact. But she was like, unfortunately, we have a good divorce. Like, they they literally did whatever they did in Tokyo. Or, like, for Radio Tokyo. Because that's where she met him. They literally had a kid and lost it. And then they took her from him. And then wouldn't let him come into the U.S. Shitty. So she Because we literally... can't do enough to her. Let's not let her husband in. Right. So she spent almost 40 years with this idea and hope that one day maybe her husband could join her in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, "Mm, no. Now, granted, I don't want to say, listen, I don't know him. He could have committed a crime for all we know. Because like I said, I couldn't find it. He could have committed a crime. But I mean, you couldn't let her have her husband. (laughs) I mean, come on. Right. How much time did you steal from her? Yes. And you want to know what she got for it? Let me tell you. So in January 15th, uh, 2006, okay, 
The World War II Veterans Committee awarded her its annual Hedward, um, yeah, Hedward, good Lord, Edward J. Hurley Citizenship Award for, quote, <laughs> I can't, her indomitable spirit, love of country, and the example of courage she has given her fellow Americans, end quote. And because she's the freaking nicest woman I've ever read about in my life, she told a biographer that this was, uh, she found it the most memorable day of her life. That award in 2006. That was in January, Whitley. September 26, 2006. She died of natural causes in a Chicago hospital at the age of 90. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Gummy and Jean's Hysterical History. Stick around for a few more minutes and listen to this broadcast of Tokyo Rose that was featured in a United States propaganda film. Hello, Yankee brothers. This is your Japanese sister, the voice of truth. The voice Tokyo of Rose reaches out to you from the peacefulness of Japan, laden as always with love, but today also with sorrow because of what your superiors are making you do. This morning, they are forcing you to attempt the impossible. Is do that Tokyo Rose? Brothers? Yeah, I guess so. The impossible. And no accident. For it is impossible for you to dislodge our forces on Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima? She's got the straight morning, dope. I am filled with sadness for you because of the thousands of Japanese soldiers Safe in caves and pillboxes, your bombs and shells can't touch, reluctantly waiting to slaughter you. They do not want to harm you, because they know that what you are attempting to do this morning is not of your own choice. They know, as I know and you know, that you are making this futile sacrifice for people who sit snug and secure 11,000 miles away, who have never seen a grenade burst in an American stomach, or an American arm blown from an American shoulder, a people who are not interested in the headlines you try to make, who make their own headlines. Listen, Yankee brothers, to these headlines. 5,000 donors desert blood bank as Eisenhower sweeps into Rhineland. Ban on horse racing leaves public heavy with war coin. No place to spend it. Strike continues in critical war industry. Three-year buying spree cleans retail shelves as public clamors for more merchandise. Workers claim nightclub curfew limits amusement spending. Does that sound like a people who want war? Who are supporting you and your sacrificial attempts to carry on this useless war? Think it over, Yankee brother. They do not want war. They are doing their best to let you know they are not behind you in this war. This is the voice of truth. I will be with you again tomorrow, those of you who are left to listen. But this morning, my heart is heavy with... All right, you Yankee brothers, you want to live forever? Get the lead out of you.